So it seems to me that the only truly socially acceptable form of ism, the one that we pretty much agree on that it's okay to do, is ageism. So with that, I was thinking, in order to start out 2019 in a really interesting way, maybe the best thing that I could do is really take a deep dive into generational stereotypes and how we see different generations. See. Every single generation feels like it's okay to just bag on any other generation that's different than they are. Don't believe me? Well, if you've ever been distraught at snowbird season, if you've ever called someone a slacker, or said someone can't communicate without their damn phone, you too have been part of the problem. Today's podcast is going to kick off a series of podcasts called Generationalism, and we are going to look at this and doing a series of looking at different generations and how the generations affect each other, both at work and in the working environment. And to do that, we're going to look at a deep dive and really try to understand why ageism happens in the way that it does and why how one generation has affected another generation to have the values that they have. Uh, a lot of times when we talk about ageism, we're truly trying to change the values from one different generation to another. And so trying to understand that stuff is really critically important if we're going to create a space and place where we really understand and value one another. So again, today's podcast is looking at generationalism, and this is this first in the series, and we are going to be looking at traditionalists. We'll look at traditionalists, then we'll look at baby boomers, then we'll look at generation next, then we'll look at millennials, and then we'll finish with some interesting stuff about Generation Z. Today, we are going to talk about how generational stories affect and impact the way different generations see and experience the world. We're going to look at the stories that affected the traditionalists and how it created their value sets. And then we're going to try to get a better understanding of the value drivers of traditionalists and how we can better understand them their value drivers, and how we can work better together with them so we can understand them and their values in new and better ways to create dynamic spaces of unity and understanding. So let's look at traditionalists specifically. They make up about 12.7% of the population. These are folks that were born before about 1945. They have a lot of different names as a generation other than just traditionalists. Sometimes they've been referred to as the builders because they've built the society post uh, World War II. They've been known as the GI generation because of the GI Bill and the impact that happened after World War I. They've been called the radio generation, the silent generation, the greatest generation, and the... No, that's it. All right. Uh, they're teen years, so they happen to be teens through the 20s, 30s, 40s, and some of the 50s specifically. Uh, some of the key uh, events that shaped their experiences was Standard Oil was broken up, uh, World War One was part of what happened to them. Prohibition happened to them. Uh, the first talking movie happened. Uh, they <laughs> they experienced the first sliced bread in 1928. They experienced the Great Depression. They were also the generation that brought us the New Deal. So it's funny when we talk about how conservative people are, but we don't understand that they're the source of the New Deal. So Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff comes from this generation specifically. They were also part of the great migration from the farm to the suburbs and they uh, experienced World War II and were part of what 
the generation that was part of the emerging and atomic age. And when you ask them what they think makes this generation unique, they say World War II as well as the Great Depression. They feel like they're smarter, they feel like they're honest, and they feel like they have a good work ethic as well as really, really good morals. So there's a little bit of background about the traditionalists. So real quick, I'm gonna talk about stories. So when we talk about stories, I'm gonna be talking about things that shape our experience. So there are certain stories that we tell in the world and it creates our experience of reality. So one of the stories uh, that I feel like is problematic and how it shapes a reality, and this is just to get you a primer to stories and what stories are, as well as how stories work, but is the idea of the thin blue line. This is like a police narrative that comes up. And it's basically saying that if there, if there was not this thin blue line, of police officers that protected us from the criminals, then all society would just collapse and devolve. And there would be no order. It would be really horrible and terrible. And it would just be a horrible, terrible experience if we did not have this thin blue line of police that separate the ne'er-do-wells, the bad people, and us. So, right? That's a story, right? And it shapes uh, police officers as heroes and also gives a sense that like maybe the community can't be trusted or that without these folks uh, we'd all be screwed right so this story this thin blue line story creates a reality that we start to experience when we believe in and buy that story now it's important to note that not all stories are necessarily true right so when we look at this thin blue line idea what uh, people fail to take into account is the fact that we police ourselves as a community and that we kind of look out for one another and you know most people like 90 something percent like i'd say like 98 to 99 percent of the people are just good people right and i think the people that are in that like not in the 98 99 percent like i'm not saying they're bad people i think they need help they're in a situation where they're having some difficulties or some struggles and we need to find a way to bridge those gaps right so not all stories are necessarily true, but people's stories and experiences have a way of affecting and shaping our sense of reality and how we experience that reality. So again, our stories really are important to us and the stories that we choose to tell make a really, really big difference for us. Uh, but it's interesting to note and it's also interesting to understand that these stories also kind of limit us because we only see the world in the way that we were taught to kind of experience it and that we really need to sometimes step outside the stories or see the ways in which stories limit us. Like the story is part of that issue or part of the problem so we can come up with better solutions in the future. So again, right, that's a little bit about stories uh, and how stories work and how stories kind of shape our experience of reality. So I'm gonna move us on to step two, and that's where we're gonna understand the stories and major events that really shaped the traditionalist perspectives. So first, I'm gonna talk a little bit about why we need to understand it, right? So a lot of people would be like, well, traditionalists are really old, they're mostly retired. You know, there's not a lot of them in the population and they keep um, diminishing in numbers, right? Because they're older, they're passing away. So why is it important to understand this generation specifically? Well, part of the problem is you can't ignore traditionalists because they have an enormous influence on organizations. 
Uh, also, the youngest of traditionalists are still in the workplace, uh, still hold a ton of leadership roles, and will be for around the next 10 years, roughly. Uh, and then also, traditionalists are people's customers, their voters, their parishioners, their patients. Uh, they can be cust your customers, too, or folks that you choose to work with, or maybe people that donate money to your cause, right? If you can understand them and where they're coming from and what they uh, meant to society. So what are the major stories that really affected this generation? The first one is going to be the Great Depression. The Great Depression, without a doubt, left an indelible mark on this generation for a really, really long time. And so they'll remember doing without or really having to suffer for stuff. So this is a generation that might have used margarine containers as like a form of Tupperware, or they got to the point where they were using tea bags over and over again uh, because you know there wasn't the luxury of just using a tea bag once they needed to use the tea bag over and over again and so they lived in a world where there was this roaring 20s this great booming economy and then immediately right after that snap the great depression and it made them cautious thrifty focused on saving there was not really a form of welfare at the time there was really no social security again no medicare no medicaid i don't know that there was food stamps specifically and so when you hear traditionalist statements like waste not want not or make do and mend uh, these are things that they had to grow up with specifically and so they had to come up in a time where they didn't have a lot of food and they needed to find a way to store the things that they had so you see a lot of like gardening canning and stuff specifically they would save stuff for the longest time uh, we kind of tend to see them as hoarders specifically which is funny with our consumerism we call them hoarders how weird is it right these stories and how they affect people so weird uh, the Great Depression made uh, traditionalists much more economically conservative, uh, and it spread to other parts of life. So they ended up being more conservative in their dress style, in their games. Uh, the Depression also put a greater focus on the family. There were puzzles, badminton, uh, the board game Monopoly was a big driver of what it was. And so the Great Depression really had a huge impact on every part of their life. Another thing that greatly impacted the the traditionalist generation was World War II. Now understand World War II was a different type of war. We're used to kind of like corporate warfare. Uh, it's one of those things that have kind of been going on really steadily since about, I want to say 2001. I mean, we've been at war in some way, shape or form pretty steadily since 2001. And I don't know that there's going to be a big stop to that. Now back in World War II, we were very isolationist. We weren't part of a global community. Uh, we kind of kept to ourselves and we were isolated in a space where globalism really hadn't happened. And so back in World War I, when we entered the war, there was a need to sacrifice. So taxes rose. Pretty much every man went to war. If you didn't go to war as a man, like maybe you only led women. Also, again, as far as women, women started driving into the workforce big time and tried to, you know, that's where the Rosie the Riveter stuff came from. And so traditionalists really don't complain about stuff. They understand that they need to sacrifice their individually for the sake of the cause. They need to sh sit down, shut up, and do that they're told. So again, like, when we, like, think about trying to complain about the local food service, they're going to be like, what are you talking about, man? Like, we went without stuff. We had to eat cold sea ration meals in foxholes. So they don't have a lot of, like, 
they don't have a lot of uh, tolerance for people complaining uh, because they're used to sacrificing for the greater good specifically. Again, super important to know this sacrificing for the greater good is something that's really important as a value driver for this organization specifically. And so these large hierarchical organizations came from military culture specifically. Uh, when they came home for the war, they led in the same way they, they were led. They ran hierarchical organizations with command and control approaches. They saw no need to chase off the ghosts of command uh, until they were rewarded with a new way of understanding the information and service economy which rewarded change speed and in the moment decision making so, but if you think about that that really didn't kind of come until the age of the internet so they didn't weren't forced to change their way of doing things until very very recently also the women when they went to work they immediately also went back to their role in the home right so they were used to being part of the workforce and contributing and making a difference for other folks and immediately once uh, johnny came marching home they went back to their role in the home right again a big sacrifice if you were making money if you had a sense of independence if you had a sense of that you were part of a bigger thing getting back into that same old role is really different when you think about what their experience is like as traditionalists specifically you also are going to see that the war made them more more trusting of government programs of uh, larger than life leaders of big government programs uh, things like that they don't tend to question authority as much they learned the power of sacrifice as well as patience and then also they learned to have kind of like that stiff upper lip and uh, you know just deal with it make do pay your dues right that's a big part of what the wars taught them specifically so the ghost story three, uh, one of the things that really made a difference for them is the move from farm to the city. So this is the first generation that moved from rural industrial economic situations to like industri more industrialized city urban areas. So when Johnny came marching home again, he again married Ro Rosie the Riveter, and she said she's not going back to the farmhouse or the outhouse. She wanted to be part, uh, live in town, use indoor plumbing, and then have the convenience of modern appliances that would make life a lot easier to deal with. So around the beginning of the 20th century, two-thirds of the United States and Canada used to live in farms or rural towns. By 1970, three-fourths of people lived then in the suburbs and would commute into work into cities specifically. So how does this make such a big difference for them? So when we think about it, life on a farm makes it easier to install a work ethic. So I know you're like, what do you, well, what does that mean exactly? Like, well, on a farm, everybody has to be part of what's going down. So Growing up, you get progressively more information and responsibility as you you gain maturity. So you might just do cleaning tasks or doing little specific things like, um, uh, you know, just like cleaning up or sweeping up, right? That might be part of your experience when you're younger or maybe like at age eight, you're like you're in charge of the eggs. At age 10, you're milking all the cows, right? So as you gain the ability and capacity to do more work, you're given more work and more responsibility. So it's easier to instill a work ethic because you see yourself as great as part of the greater whole and you start making a difference and an impact in new and different ways as you gain the ability and responsibility to make that change on other things, right? And it's funny because people will tell me that like back in the day, there was a different work ethic or that 
you know, there wasn't an immediate gratification, right? Like they had to plant crops and they weren't paid till spring where they harvest the crops and they went to sell. You know, when you think about it, that's not necessarily true because they used the things that they made on the farm that day. So imagine somebody is wanting biscuits uh, for breakfast, right? They got to get up at 4 a.m. and they got to milk the cows. Well, if you don't milk the cows or you don't churn the butter, then you're not going to get the biscuits that day, right? If you don't do that work, you're not the fruit of that work won't bear biscuits for that day specifically. So it's actually funny. Work ethic there shows that if you put the work in, you'll get the thing that's due to you and it'll come to you specifically. So you see how the ghost story of the move from the farm to the city made a really big difference on them and it gave them a different sense of work ethic because there was more immediate gratification. There was more of a do this work and you'll see the this fruit bared like for us it takes us two weeks to get rewards from the work that we'll do on a day-to-day -day basis because we don't get that paycheck in the same way whereas if you milk a cow you have the milk immediately you can use the milk for your cereal right you see that connection and how that makes a difference for that generation from their perspective another thing that it did is it provided for more meaningful adult roles at a much earlier age so again Traditionalists uh, weren't necessarily only considered adults at 18. Uh, at 18, they would maybe starting families, right? Maybe they would get to a place where they're they're making a space for themselves, or they're uh, managing another part of the farm specifically. So when you look at the age when a traditionalist was really joining the workforce specifically, you might say a traditionalist is in the workforce at as, as an age at an age as young as eight because of the amount of work that they're needing to do. That's why we have summer vacation specifically. It ain't supposed to be vacation. It's supposed to be the time that they work on the farm so they can help reap the crops that are necessary on a day-to-day -day basis so they can afford to go to school during the winter when the crop seasons aren't going on. Now, when there's been that move to the city and we don't live on the farm, there's been this thing that uh, people have called, like it's a new form of, um, development and it's called delayed adolescence so now people aren't really seen as an adult till like upper 20s at best right so when you see a young man who's like 28 years old and spends like four to five hours a day playing video games like the easy thing to do is be like well what's wrong with him what's going on with them why do they see and do things in that way well part of the problem is is they're not given the ability to have a stewardship or a responsibility over something because they're seen as incapable because they're not seen as an adult yet and so this idea of delayed adolescence people will look at the person and act like it's a character difficult deficit instead sociologists had defined the ages from 18 to 28 as an emerging adulthood because it comes after adolescence and before early adulthood it takes longer to get an education as well as enter society and become part of the workforce and so understanding the dynamics of what this life stage does to people has people very judgmental to one another at work so when you see people kind of like taking a longer time to become an adult it's because people we're not giving the op them the opportunities to have these responsibilities that would like thrust them into adulthood at a much different rate also, the move uh, from farm to city made a diff big difference because back in the day, you can't really commit crime, right? Like, you know, how far are you going to go to rob your neighbor and you know your neighbor up to like 20 miles away, 
right? You can't really do that stuff. Uh, if I wanted some black tar heroin, like it's not available at the farm. There's no prostitutes on the farm. It's harder to get pregnant on the farm. And when they did get pregnant, because that did happen a lot, there were shotgun weddings and people got married right away. So no one knew that they were having sex before marriage because they forced folks to get married after the fact, uh, but before people knew. So as soon as that period stopped, you saw people getting married pretty quick, but it makes this idea or this story of that it was a much more moral time and people were following the rules and had more respect for the rules. They weren't following the rules better. It just made it easier to hide and show people are uh, made it seem like people were following the rules when really they were doing the same old thing that they ever did specifically. Also, uh, it made work happen on a specific timeline. So on the farm, you had to you had daylight, right? If you ever heard anybody say burning daylight or there's only so much time in the day, we got to get to work. Like for the folks that have never worked on the farm, we can work whenever we want. If you wanted to produce some work at 3 a.m., we can easily do that stuff. But traditionalists are used to working sunup to sundown at best, right? But when the sun went down, there's not the opportunity to do work in the same way because there's just not light back then, right? So work hours are much more important to traditionalists because of the fact that they only had daylight and so the idea of burning daylight or this is the time that we we really want to get stuff done is really important that's why uh, if you tend to sleep in like when the sun's up and uh, you don't get up till like noon like traditionalists get really upset about that stuff because they see that as lazy because they won't see the work that gets done like maybe from like 8 p.m. to 2 a.m., right? By that person that does a different work cycle. But that value for working from this more set shift, this time, this time thing specifically comes from traditionalists and comes from this work on the farm. The last ghost story is the uh, mass marketing and the confidence of experts. So back in the day, radio was really the space and place where you'd hear about things and experts are where you learned about stuff. And so you didn't really question experts. You didn't really question your boss specifically. So understanding they've always valued the guidance of experts was really, really something that was really important to them. If Lux soap was good enough for four out of five households, well then why wouldn't it be good enough for them? Or if uh, big band leader Benny Goodman smoked camels and said it doesn't cause any throat irritation, well, we'd listen to him, right? Because he's the only person outside of our social circle that tells us anything. That golden age of radio really affected the way stuff was done. And it wasn't just the ads that were on the radio. Remember back in the day when they're hearing these radio spots, the entire program is sponsored by one sponsor specifically don't you think they worked in some stories that made the people that were going through the experience in the story love the brand that put that stuff on of course it did but it was harder to see that stuff remember this is back in 1901 this is back in world war ii experts like roosevelt on the radio with these fireside chats talking to them and telling them about what's going on greatly drove their day they ended their childhoods trusting in experts and confident in their leaders and would turn to mass advertising as a way of understanding stuff. So understanding how the rise of the expert as well as the effect of mass marketing on this generation is a very, very important part of understanding the value drivers of the traditionalist generation. So when you look at some of the values, so we have to understand they have the value for work ethic, right? 
of course they have, this is the last thing we're going to be talking about. Of course they have a value for work ethic because they saw the fruits of their labor come about when they would put in the work immediately. Again, you milk the cow, you got the milk, you, you can use the milk on the biscuits, right? Or if they saw themselves as more value driven specifically, right? Well, we didn't do drugs in my day or we didn't uh, run out in gangs or you didn't see unwed mothers with, with uh, kids, right? Well, of course, it's going to be part of that experience because life on the farm didn't make it so that stuff was really possible. And traditionalists grew up in more of a rural setting and didn't really have a city experience until they were adults, until they came back from the war, right? So they're going to see themselves as more moral because of the fact that they lived in a situation in space where they couldn't be immoral specifically. So understanding the morality value driver is really important. You're also going to see a lot of value placed on putting in your day's work specifically. And when I say day's work, again, it's really that eight to five thing, right? It's going to be showing up at work on time, right? You can't not show up on time. And showing up on time means getting up early enough to get the eggs uh, so you can make the dinner. Like that's important, right? If you don't get up to make the eggs to have dinner, you can't eat that first meal and have the food that's going to power you to keep working till 6 p.m. and the sun goes down. That's super, super important to that generation. And you have to make do, you have to make hay while the light allows it, right? I think that's actually a term. You have to make hay where the, the light allows it. Uh, that's gonna be something that really drives the values of this organization. Also, they tend to defer to people in power or in charge. They had to. They were in the military at the time. So listening to your generals is really important. That led them to believe in uh, the power of experts and also let them the war made them value self-sacrifice specifically right like could you imagine back in world war ii like storming the beaches of normandy knowing like 80 percent of the people were gonna die like eight like like in the whole thing like 80 percent of like i think they got dropped off in like hundreds or two hundreds really made a big big difference so understanding that is really important too also, this idea of collectivism, right, that we're willing to come together and to work towards a greater good, I think is important because I feel like traditionalists are looked at as individualists specifically, but they brought some of the most communal programs ever. The war, all the sacrifice that they did for one another, that was the spuff that was the rise of the New Deal. That's where they worked and they were willing to get taxed at a higher rate so they could create the uh, infrastructure for the power grid that we currently use for the interstate highway system specifically that came from that generation's willingness to be taxed because they knew it was for the greater good again this is something that we can leverage when we talk to traditionalists specifically it's a value driver that they all agreed on like they all liked the new deal like you talk to like a republican that has medicare they love medicare specifically if we could somehow bring them in on thoughts and ideas like this we could leverage this idea of collectivism to help us work together better with them specifically they also had a better sense of stewardship so they could put a young person there wasn't this delayed adolescence thing right you could put someone that's eight in charge of something that's really big because you had to there was nobody else to assign that task to so the ability to see with greater capacity comes greater responsibility and greater benefit to the whole, right? You see how that collectivism stuff really drives them and really drives their experience and their understanding for stuff? That's also super important. Uh, the ability to make do. 
the ability to sacrifice in times of need. The Great Depression is something that really made a big difference with that stuff. So understanding this and how they work is going to be a really big part of understanding and being able to work with this generation. Also, know that they care a lot about family time. They really are uh, much more quality time driven in the way that they appreciate when the way they love each other, right? So families spent more time playing puzzles or playing games together. There wasn't a TV, right? So you had to do that stuff together. It takes longer to get to know a traditionalist. You gotta t you sit around, you gotta talk to them. You gotta make them feel like you understand them in order to really get them to be part of your team. You can't just send them a text message. You can't just leave them a voicemail. You gotta sit down and have those longer lunches to create those connections because that's the way they were raised. That's the things that they understand. Uh, and again, when you can leverage that stuff, this generation has shown they're willing to go out and like sacrifice in greater numbers for other folks like with World War II, or they're willing to come up with a new deal that makes a really big difference for a lot of different people, even folks that aren't exactly like them specifically, right? Because back in the New Deal days, uh, back in the Great Depression days, no one was lazy when they weren't able to do stuff because we're looking at something that affected so many different people. There wasn't like the have, the have not so much. There wasn't the damning of the poor. You know, poor was everywhere, right? If you just got by, you know, you saw yourself as poor, you were willing to help help and to reach out and help different folks. Uh, also, this idea of upward mobility and being able to put your time in, right? That's going to be something that really affects traditionalists specifically too. Like they're going to want to see someone for a long period of time so they know they can trust them. They're not just going to give them authority or responsibility right away. They're not used to that. That's not the way they see those things. But when you prove your capability, I think they're more than willing to give that individual a shot, right? So understanding the stories helps us see what the values are. And when we understand what the values are, it's easier to work with them. And again, the traditionalist values are gonna shape how we understand how the baby boomers values are and the way they're affected by stuff, right? Because their childhood affects their adulthood. And so when we look at the baby boomers, we're gonna be looking at the suburban childhood. What did that mean? How did they feel? Uh, why was there a baby boom specifically? But if we don't understand traditionalists and we don't understand the way they work now, then we're not able to work together with them. And you can say what you want about snowbird stuff. You can talk about how much they drone on and on. But again, it's part of what shaped them. There's reasons why they see and feel and experience the world this way. And it's not enough to just write folks off. They're not necessarily wrong. And I know a lot of, a lot of traditionalists uh, might be seen as folks that like support Donald Trump. But when they say make America great again, they're trying to think about the values that made their generation great. And not that any other generations great or not great specifically, but we don't sit down and listen to this generation. We don't have this collectivist mentality sometimes in the same way. We don't show things, we don't show a work ethic in the same way they're used to seeing it. Uh, they don't know about the work that we do at night. They don't know about uh, what a gig economy looks like. They've never had to work in one, right? But we don't connect with them because we don't sit down with them when we don't understand what their experiences are like that's why i'm doing this work here now so you can understand what this stuff is like for for others and so if you work with a traditionalist you'll understand the values that make them feel and think the way they do and so you'll have the better opportunity to work with them you know 
uh, again, they're going to defer to experts. If you're young, you're not an expert and you know, you're not put in an expert role. So it's harder for them to hear you. But when you put time in, when you get, when you show them your expertise, when you show them your value, it's harder to deny and it makes a bigger difference. So again, this is going to be the first part of, let's see, we got traditionalists, we got baby boomers, we got generation X, we got millennials and we got the Generation Z. So this will be the first in a five-part series where we look at ageism specifically so we can understand things a little bit better from different perspectives. Now, as far as the podcast goes, we are now on a secure server, which is super dope. Uh, it really spiked downloads because it made look everything look like it showed up for the first time. So there was like a day where there was like 600 downloads and I was like, oh my God, what's going on? Like the podcast is popping. And so that's good. And now we're on Spotify, which is super cool. So remember, if you're getting value out of this, like let me know about it or let other folks know. So again, all you got to do is if you're listening to this on t- some type of smart device, if you click on the podcast itself, sometimes there's a dot or a menu and you could share this. So share it with somebody that you feel like would really benefit from this information. Uh, that person to person sharing is where the podcast grows and we get different voices as part of stuff. Another thing you can do is rate and review us. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Pocket Cast, on outcast i don't know if outcast is a thing or not uh but there's a lot of like different pod servers out there and if you could rate review us if you could share us it makes a really big difference for us in giving us the ability to be heard by different folks so for me checking in on my activism again i have not been that incredibly active as of late i really take the holidays as an opportunity to take a knee so i have not done much of that stuff recently and uh, i'm looking at scheduling more and more of those things specifically right so again the podcasting uh i've done a lot of book reading and i'll recommend some of the books where i got this information to you all so i guess my activism has really been more research recently uh as well as doing the self-care that i need to do so I can get be be more active specifically. So I've read a couple different books about Generation Z. Uh, some of the information I got this book uh, from is from a book called Sticking Points, How to Get Four Generations Working Together and the 12 Places They Come to Bar. That would be my recommendation for the podcast is to read the Sticking Points book by Hayden, H-A-Y-D-N-S-H-A-W. Uh, he's part of the Franklin Covey uh, folks, and I do like Franklin Covey stuff a lot. So sticking points is something you should check out if you haven't had the opportunity to read it. Uh, so self-care has been great. I've been getting most of my lifting done, even though the gym's been closed quite a bit. Oh, also with my activism, I sat in on law enforcement trainings, guided pathways, and I really talked to them about communication classes that I would hope make better officers in the future. So I know that's something that I did and something that I'm working on. I'm also learning out how to promote my podcast a little bit more, and I'm looking at doing more work with, uh, getting more community involvement in policing, which is going to be happening in the near future. Uh, back to self-care. So the lifting has been good. I haven't got to arms and abs like I'd hoped, but the cardio has been great. I've gotten cardio in maybe five or six times a week. And so that's something I'm really, really proud of. And again, every time I do cardio, it feels like my skin looks better. So maybe there's something to it. Maybe you need to do some cardio. My meditation's been off a bit. I've only been able to get in one, like maybe a week at best. Uh, I'm going to start back on that, hopefully tomorrow morning. Uh, get up a little bit early, like 5.30. Whew, that sounds early. Uh, but do 15 minutes of meditation so I can get that day in. Again, meeting up with people that I care about. I've been taking my supplements and uh, got some great time in with Tank. Uh, Michelle and I are also 
like playing some games and stuff so we'll be playing like catch with the football and then tank puts the ball in his mouth and runs back and forth and he does some of that stuff and that was really really cool and it was neat to see that we can kind of like play basketball maybe or we can play football or we play soccer and then tank gets to kind of run around and enjoy that time with us because all he does is i'm serious he has this ball in his mouth and he just runs back and forth with this frenetic excitedness. He's just so excited to be hanging out there with us at the park. That's been really special. So maybe that's part of self-care too. Uh, I also still need to get him out a little bit more as far as socializing with dogs, but we did a lot of hiking and things like that. And I think that's helped him too. So if you're curious about this topic or if you wanna ask some questions about ageism or generations or generations working together, please let me know. You can always text me or call and leave a voicemail at 860-576-9393, 860-576-9393. You can call, you can leave a text at that number. Let me know what you're thinking about this generation stuff. I think it's really fascinating and very uh, valuable information, especially if you're going into the workplace specifically. But uh, voicemail me, leave me an email at inclusiveactivism at cox.net. Tell me what you're thinking about this, this podcast series. I'm excited about it. You're going to get a lot of great content and I'm going to give you almost a full book's worth of value uh, summarized in an inclusive activism kind of way. And again, why does this matter as inclusive activists? Well, because ageism is a problem. It's a separator. It's one of those things that keep us from being our best self. So we want to work as a collectivist as much as possible. And that means understanding traditionalists if we're going to be anti-ageist specifically. Uh, and who knows, maybe that anti-ageism keeps us younger in some ways specifically too. So again, uh, text me 860-576-9393. Email me inclusiveactivism at cox.net. Make this a conversation. I am looking forward to this series too. As, as always, if you're interested in booking me and bringing the power of inclusive activism to your organization, you can do so by emailing me at inclusiveactivism at cox.net. That's I-N-C-L-U-S-I-V-E-A-C-T-I-V-I-S-M at cox.net. You can leave me a voicemail at 860-576-9393. Uh, you can text me at 860-576-9393. And if you want to learn more about me or this organization, you can always do so at www.inclusiveactivism.com. Hopefully you learned a little bit more about traditionalists, and I can't wait for us to take this journey together in understanding generational differences and value drivers and stories so we can understand each other and come together and work together in spaces of a dynamic inclusivity and communality. Uh, I hope you have a great day, and if you're in school, good luck on your spring semester. If you're back at work, I hope you have a productive 2019, because you know I was ready as AF for 2019. With that, y'all be your best, and I'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye.